purpose of this podcast is to tell the story of Bill Tillman and his Buffalo days. Tillman was among the very first white men to locate a buffalo hunting camp on the extreme southwestern border of Barber County, Kansas. This buffalo camp in 1870 was just across the Indian Reservation line. Bill Tillman is one of the very few surviving white men who reached the southwest border of Kansas before the advent of railroads. Billy Tillman, like the others in that country at the time, became a buffalo hunter and was working along nicely until the Indians got after him. The following story is based on an article written by Bat Masterson from Chapter 4 of his book entitled Famous Gunfighters of the Western Frontier. Wild West Podcast proudly presents Buffalo Days, narrated by Brad Smalley. Buffalo Days. I knew Bill Tillman when hunting buffalo as far back as 1870. Tillman, a slim-built, bright-looking youth, scarcely 17 years old, was among the first white men to locate a buffalo along the extreme southwestern border of Barber County, Kansas. He'd set up a hunting camp just across the Indian Reservation line. I can remember when Ed and I first joined his team. Tillman pulled up to our camp one evening. We were located on the back of the Medicine Lodge River in southwestern Kansas. Tillman asked if we needed work. He said he needed some skinners. Ed and I were excited to join him on a buffalo hunt. We traveled with him using our wagon to a place only a few miles north of the boundary line. The boundary line was between Kansas and the Indian Territory. When we set up camp, Ed became concerned about us being too far south on the Indian hunting grounds. Tillman laughed at Ed's comment. He told us we were already deep in hostile Indian country. He explained how General Custer had put down an Indian uprising lasting more than a year. Don't fret over those Indians, said Tillman. The Indians, by terms of a recent treaty, had no right to leave their reservation without first obtaining permission from their agent. It's unlawful for an Indian to be in Kansas without government permission. Tillman grinned. On the other hand, it's also forbidden for a white man to enter the Indian Territory for either hunting or trading whiskey with the Indians, he said. The Indians, however, care little for treaty stipulations. They often cross over into Kansas to pillage as well as kill buffalo. Tillman told us how the Indians were known to conduct small raids on Buffalo Hunters Camp while away hunting. Those Indians don't like us Buffalo Hunters much, laughed Tillman. They like to destroy the hunters' buffalo hides and carry away provisions and blankets, concluded Tillman. After a week or so out on the plains hunting buffalo, Tillman told Ed and I he noticed a small band of Indians lurking about in the country. The Indians came upon our camp that day while we were away. They cut up what hides we had staked on the ground for drying purposes. They also set fire to a pile of hides we had dried and ready for market. Our camp was a complete wreck. The Indians had destroyed several hundred dollars worth of hides. The noble red men who had visited our camp had also carried off everything there was to eat. But as buffalo hunters, we found no trouble in making a hearty meal of buffalo meat. That day's hunt had resulted in the taking of 25 buffalo hides. And a question now arose from Ed. What are we going to do with all these buffalo hides? If we stake them out to dry as the others had been, then the Indians would return and destroy all of our new hides, declared Ed. There's no reason to believe the Indians will not return and destroy them as they did the others. 
Both Ed and I were in favor of moving away from this location the first thing the next morning. We're liable to all be killed if we stay here any longer, said Ed. I think we ought to go about 20 miles further north over Mule Creek, suggested Ed. Besides, hunting is as good there as here. The Indians hardly ever get that far away from the reservation. We will move away from here, agreed Billy, in his characteristically deliberate manner, but only after I get even with those red thieves for the damage they've caused us, demanded Tillman. Billy Tillman, although a mere boy at the time, was the mastermind of our camp, and what he said was law. Ed, said Billy, go hitch up the team and drive to Griffin's ranch. We'll need some more supplies. When you get to the ranch, purchase a sack of flour, some coffee, sugar, and a sack grain for the horses, ordered Tillman. You need to get back here before daylight in the morning. Your brother and I will unload these hides and peg them out to dry. Don't forget to feed the team when you get to the ranch. You'll need to let them rest up for an hour or two before you head back to camp. You'll have plenty of time to do that and get here by daybreak. Griffin's Ranch was 15 miles north of our camp on the Medicine Lodge River. The only place nearer to purchase hunting supplies and provisions was Wichita. Wichita was 150 miles further east where hunting supplies and provisions could be obtained. Ed was soon on his way to Griffin's Ranch, which only took three hours to reach. Tillman and I were busily engaged in fleshing and staking out the green hides while Ed was away. I could tell Billy was still mad at those Indians. He looked directly at me with determination gleaning from his eyes. Billy remarked, If those thieving Cheyennes come back again around this camp for the purpose to destroy things, they're likely to be a big powwow. I don't intend to stop shooting as long as there's one of them in sight, Tillman said with some emphasis. But supposing, I asked with hesitation, that there's a dozen or so of them when they come, what then? Kill the entire outfit, replied Billy, if they don't run away. There was little else said on the subject before bedtime. It was a hard matter to understand by Tillman's actions. The only thing that seemed to worry him was the fear the Indians would fail to pay the camp another visit. Tillman wanted his revenge. Before daylight the following morning, Ed was back in camp, having carried out his instructions to the letter. After breakfast that morning, Tillman informed Ed and I that we would have to hunt without him that day. He told us he planned to conceal himself near the camp. Tillman had made a plan to be in a position to extend a cordial welcome to the pillaging Redskins. Them Indians better not show up this time, said Tillman, as he headed to a tree line overseeing our camp. I watched Billy as he planted himself under cover of the trees before we left for the hunting ground. He was so well hidden that even the Indians watching our camp could not tell if we had all left camp as we had done the previous day. It was about noon when one lone Indian made his appearance at our camp. He rode up very leisurely to the top of a little knoll where he could get a good view of the camp. The one Indian was careful to survey the camp's surroundings. The Indian discovered nothing to cause alarm and proceeded to make the usual Indian signals. This was done by circling the pony around in different ways. A Tillman, who was crouched down in his little cache, was intently watching the Indian. He understood as well as the redskin the meaning of the pony's gyrations. Then it happened. Six other Indians rode up alongside the first and proceeded to make a careful mental note of everything in sight. The Indians soon concluded that there was no lurking danger and all rode down to the camp. This is what Billy had been hoping they would do. Now, Billy thought to himself, if they will only all dismount, as he looked out on the Indians riding down to camp. I'll kill the last one in the outfit before they can remount. He got his wish. 
for they all hopped down as soon as camp was reached. Billy, however, waited for a while to see if they intended mischief before opening up his guns on them. Billy was ready with his Sharps Big 50 Buffalo gun, a weapon that burned 120 grains of powder every time it exploded a shell. Billy did not have long to wait, for no sooner had one big buck hit the ground than he ran over to the sack of flour and picked it up and threw across his pony's back. Some of the others started out, as Billy supposed, to cut up the freshly staked hides. The big Indian who swiped the sack of flour had scarcely turned around before Tillman dropped him in his tracks with his rifle. The first shot from Billy's rifle caused a panic among the other Indians. Little did they suspect that there was an enemy near until they heard the crack of the gun. In an instant, Billy had in another cartridge, and another thieving Cheyenne was sent to the happy hunting grounds. A second Indian succeeded in reaching his pony. He had no sooner mounted him than he was knocked off by another bullet from Billy's Big 50. This made three out of the original seven killed. This was when the unusual thing occurred. One of the Indians abandoned his pony and took for a run. When Billy saw the Indian on the run, he thought to himself, Southern Plains Indians do not abandon their ponies. Billy managed to nail one more of the fleeing marauders before he could reach the sheltering protection of the woods. The shooting attracted our attention. We were not more than two miles away. This caused us to hurry back to our camp. When we arrived, we expected to have to take a hand in a fight with Indians, whom we had reason to believe were responsible for the shooting we had heard. The scrap is over, said Billy when we got near enough to hear him. Four of the hounds made their escape. I told you that night, didn't I, Bat, that I would kill all if they came and stood their ground and didn't run away? Well, he said in a rather hopeless tone of voice, I fell somewhat short of my calculations as seven came and I only succeeded in getting three. But then that wasn't so bad considering they left us their ponies. What's to be done now, inquired Ed, who was not hankering for a run-in with the Indians at that time. Don't get frightened, said Billy. Remember, we're in Kansas, and those dead Indians were nothing more than thieving outlaws. They have no right to be off their reservation. If any more of them come around before we're ready to leave, we'll start right off and killing them. There was, nevertheless, little time wasted in getting away from that locality. In a hurry, we loaded the Camp Dunnage into our wagon. The team headed towards the north. Ed, who was driving, was told to keep up a lively trot whenever possible. Billy brought up the rear, mounted on one of the Indian ponies, and driving the others. Look here, Billy, I said as we were about to pull out of camp. Don't you think we ought to bury those dead Indians before leaving? Never mind those dead Indians, replied Tillman. The buzzards will attend to their funeral. Go ahead. Let's get out of here while the getting's good. When dark overtook our party that night, we were on Mule Creek, 25 miles from where we had pulled up camp at noon. The Indians reported the occurrence of the killing to their agent at the Cheyenne Agency, but received no satisfaction. The Indians were informed that they were liable to be killed every time they left the reservation without permission. That was my first mix-up with the Indians. It was not my last. I left Billy on the plains when we returned to Dodge City to sell our hides. During my buffalo days, I had come to realize that courage is nothing less than indifference to hardship and pain. Billy taught me how to survive on the frontier. He taught me a man's courage in the frontier is his way of maintaining virtue, a virtue that's always respected even when associated with vice. Billy continued to hunt in that country. As the Indians persisted in crossing over into Kansas, there were many clashes between them, which invariably resulted in the Indians getting the worst of the encounter.